Welcome back to another episode of The Voices of Boyle. This week I have the pleasure of chatting with Joe Malidi. Joe's journey through cycling, sports and his battle with Lyme disease are just some of the topics that we'll be delving into. From his cycling passion and racing experiences to his undefeated spirit after being diagnosed with Lyme disease, Joe's story is one of resilience and determination. So saddle up and let's dive into the episode. Welcome, Joe, to the podcast. Hope you're keeping well. Thanks very much, Carlo. It's great to be invited. Yeah, absolutely. Well, keeping with the tradition of the podcast, um, Joe, maybe take us back to the beginning. You were reared in Churchview. So why don't you tell us a bit about what it was like growing up back in those days? Well, I don't know about yourself, but fond memories I have of Churchview and in Boyle in particular is long, hot summers. Very few rainy days that I can remember. Long, long evenings, playing football on the street, um, cycling everywhere. and Football? Football, playing football on the street, mainly. Playing football in the in the GA park, down the soccer pitch, swimming in Assey, swimming the Dune Shore, cycling everywhere. Yeah, the um, I don't know if you'd probably remember as well from back because we're similar age. So you'd have the street. I think it was called the street leagues. You'd have Marion Road. You'd have Churchview, Forestview, Tarman, and there used to be fierce uh, rivalry between those two teams. But they were a big part of the chi- uh, my childhood memories as well growing up was these different, you know, and they'd be played, I think, down on the Pleasure Ground. Well, I think the Pleasure Ground was Tarman's home venue. But then you had uh, Churchview, I think, down at the bottom of the hill had a pitch of some sort back then. I'm not sure. We had a pitch that was later on now that we got that pitch. Yeah. Um, it was... The field itself was pretty rough and ragged, so um, it was uh, the council at one stage. I remember leveled it out, and we got the grass was never great on it, though it was like a, it was like a a, a mire really. Yeah, um, got goals, but we used to frequent our gates really. Yeah, all In the between, time. Yeah, yeah, exactly for, for a game, uh, three four side first to twenty. Yeah, twenty went on to twenty one. 25, 30. Next goal wins. I think, yeah, yeah. I don't know how many next goals I had. <laughs> so obviously then playing football was a big part of your childhood. Did you do anything playing football then kind of in the secondary school years? Were you involved or? I recall playing football in first year and second year, but I uh, I think it was up until under 14 that I played in, in secondary school. See, I was... I was in a age, I suppose, that kind of fell between two 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 branches or two stools. That the the cut off period was in the middle of the year. So myself and next door neighbour Martin Mullen was, um, we were a year. Uh, we were on a team that was probably a year ahead of us in school. So we were playing football with lads that we didn't really know. Well, at the time we didn't know. We wouldn't have been friendly with them and. Friends of ours that we were pally with round the street uh, in school, they were they were below us in a, in a, a different age group. So I suppose we were kind of I wouldn't say outsiders, but we were we were definitely uh, warming the bench a lot of the times. Mm. Yeah, um, and 
so yeah, Martin Mullen. Now, was when you were talking about that, was that with Boyle Celtic or was that with that would have been Boyle G. Boyle. Oh, yeah. so this is Boyle G. This is Gao. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. Um. So Martin was Martin was in your year as Martin well. Martin was in he? my year. Yeah. yeah. He was, he's seven days older, seven days younger than me. All right. Okay. Four. Yeah. yeah. And was there any other sports then that you were into, Joe, at a young age? Football and ah, oh, when we were in. National school, we would have played a lot of football, Gaelic football, soccer. I did play. I did, I did play with Boyle Celtic for a while, but it was short-lived. Un, uh, um, underage. Is underage. Fell out of love with Boyle, um, with the GA then. Um, it was around under-14s. Took a bit of a sabbatical, I suppose, or a rest period. And then I got involved with um, martial arts in, in Green Dragon um, with John Sweeney from Sligo. Okay, so trans- transitioning from football to martial arts then is a bit of a shift. So how did your time with Green Green Dragon? Green Dragon, yeah. How did that shape your kind of interest then and experience then moving on forward in life? It, at the time, it was it was when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, yeah. <laughs> Gladiators, all that was on TV. I suppose I felt part of that scene and, you know, strive to be maybe on TV at some point and be part of that as well you know the competition the yeah that kind of angle of things but yeah. um met new friends developed a sort of a relationship with um, um a lad that was on the street with us uh, myself and him were the only two that were playing um, do participating in martial arts at the time so it was it was a different angle i suppose different it was something different than everybody else was 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 doing it wasn't just the GA, it was... Yeah, it was good. that it was, was different back new, then, yeah. Because yeah. there wouldn't have been too many I can remember that was no, doing martial no. arts. And did you get any black belt, purple, blue uh, belt? I got or? as far as purple, I think, was the last. So I what? I missed out on the brown and... So what's the kind of, the colour... Um, the grad- grading the, of the colours. The grading colors. at yeah. the time was um, from white to yellow to orange, I think red, blue, green, purple, brown... And then I think there was black. There was a few intermittent ones in between them as well. Different shades. But I think I think there was ten grades altogether before you'd get to black black okay. belt level. And, and so I think it roughly took about five years to get to the purple that to you get had. To, no, to get to black. Okay. I, I think I missed out on the grade uh, at one point, and I would have been a brown if I hadn't missed out on it. Yeah. So, um, John Sweeney pulled out of Boyle then at one point, and. Um, was expecting us or or wanted us to go tra- uh, training down Sligo, of course. I didn't have that opportunity to get down or to go. It would have been too difficult getting getting transport. I just gave it up. Fizzled out. Fizzled out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Leaving cert, I think it all happened at around the same time, so. That would have been... I was that in, was 97. Right, because I, uh, I was 96. I think, yeah, yeah, I was 96. Yeah. So you would have been... Yeah, I thought, yeah, you were a year behind me then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So after leaving cert came and went, did you you went to college? No, I took a year out of college. Right. I had this idea in my head. My father at the time was I was had a motorbike, and I had this idea in my head that I was going to go working for a year, and I was going to go to college, and I was going to buy a motorbike and use that as transport. Right. <laughs> so I uh, took a year out and went working. Uh, went working in Knockvicker with. Um, company called Kermock Strings and at Christmas time then I got into Stuart's Mill and Boyle so 
stayed there working, for a year. Stayed working there for, it would have been eight months maybe, working with Danny Shanley, Tony Shanley, Pat Roddy, Jason Byrne, and crack we had was something else. Like, worked hard, but great crack. Yeah. Um, almost didn't, decided not to go to college. I was going to stay working in Stewart's Mill and, the allure of making a few pounds. Allure of making a few yeah, pounds, yeah. Going out, enjoying life and then having to pack up all that. And So you did actually then go, you went to college then after? I went to college then after that, yeah. yeah. In Sligo, was in it? In Sligo. Yeah. I had initially done, I had initially picked construction studies. The change of mind form came out when I got the Leaving Cert results. I think it came out when I got the Leaving Cert results and I said I'd change my mind. I'd go for civil engineering instead. So... Went for that and I know my leaving cert results just got me through, got me, well, it got me enough yeah, yeah. to get in and um, went down and was was happy out. So you stayed in, you stayed in Sligo for four years? Stayed in Sligo for five. Five? Five years, right. yeah, it was yeah. five year degree, tough going. Yeah. We started with 64 in the class, I believe. Uh, went down, was, the attrition rate was about a half every year. Really? Yeah. And I think there was about, there was two of us that finished. Now there was... There was two ten, out of 64? There was two from the first year we went in, out of 64 that passed, got got our degree in civil engineering. Now we had other uh, students come from other, other colleges. You had lads that were probably repeating the year, came back. But yeah, two, two from what started in first year. In 1999, I think I believe it was. Jeez, that's that's a or huge 98. number to like whittle through in five it is, years. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Uh, but as you said, two EV graduated. Out two of, graduated. There was obviously more. There in, was. There yeah. Was, okay. I think there was ten altogether. Even ten out of sixty-four. It just shows you the. Yeah. It was great. a tough course. It yeah. was. It was one of the toughest courses down there. Right. Very heavily maths orientated. A lot of students coming from other colleges found it very difficult. Difficult. Mm. It was so strict, so stringent. There was a lot of work involved at the time. The IT were striving for um, accreditation with the Engineers Ireland, so there was a lot of extra subjects. There was heavily weighted towards maths. There was additional structures involved, so there was a lot of studying. I think I recall. In the final year, I think I had 26 hours a week, which would be a, a lot for a college course. Oh, yeah, it would have been, yeah. And when you were involved then, in, were you involved in any organisations or sports down? Did you get, did you play any football, for example? Or? At the, I recall going back to, um, back to the college and after a month or so, finding my feet down there, I knew Green Dragon used to, to have their classes out at Mahra Boy on a Wednesday night. So I decided I'll bring my gear with me and I'll head off. But then I found it was 20 minutes walk out to Mahra Boy from where I was. So I put it off for the Wednesday night, the next Wednesday night, yeah. <laughs> the next. So I suppose the first first year was could have been, you could you, you could say it was probably writ off towards uh towards the pub yeah. um, studying in the pub and I eventually found um, rugby yeah because I remember when because we hadn't spoken or met in a long long time and I did remember hearing that you were 
playing rugby. So what was that like then from in, that was probably second or third year in college? I think it was second year when I found rugby. Um, started with the college team. Met a few lads that were there, you know, that took me under their wing. I had never played rugby before, but I found it was a place for everybody. You know, it didn't matter what size you are, uh, big or small. There was a there was a position for you no matter what. Where in the Gaelic, you know, it was, I, I would, over the years, you know, would have been struggling with weight issues the whole lot. And um, even down through, through the years, you know, it would have been, the butt of jokes, I suppose, in, in secondary school, as you would expect. And I found rugby, there was a place for me and there was, there was no sort of, um, what would you say, history, judgment, judgment yeah. yes. Okay. As long as you could get that ball, carry that ball with you and try and get across the line and drink points hard afterwards. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was yeah. a place for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you kind of, you found an outlet there then, and were you doing any weight training or gym work? Gym work, weight training, proteins, creatines, every sort of thing that money could spend. Oh, yeah, yeah, You could spend on. Um, Sure, the amount of money, I'd say, that was gone down the toilet like it was, you know, colossal. Like when you can, uh, at the time, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, Just thought, you know, it was a case of, Try and bulk up and also try and lose weight at the same time, which is impossible. Oxymoron, really, yeah. Found that yeah. out in later life. That Every, I think everyone, though, like, even I remember when I started training for it, it was the same thing. You try and put on muscle, but yet lose weight. It's like... It's I think hard. everybody has to go through that phase. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. And you and, don't... And buy the, the, the protein and the creatine mm. were the two kind of things you had to buy. Although nowadays, I'd say there's a lot more stuff that's out there, different supplements that you can get. But back in our day, those were the two big yeah, ones. Yeah, they were you the know. main ones, yeah. 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 So you played then for Sligo, the Sligo Rugby. Through, through the college, I um, met up with, I think it was a fella called Martin Feeney. At the time, I was, yeah, I suppose, 16, I was 16 stone at my heaviest and I was playing prop forward for the IT and my compadre, I suppose, was Martin Feeney. He was the other side of me on the in the scrum. So he had changed from Ballina and he was living in Sligo. He had um, transferred from Ballina to Sligo. So he was encouraging me to go out playing rugby with Sligo Rugby Club. So I was looking for something to do in the in the middle of the summer as well as during the college year. So I decided I'd said I'd give it a go. I arrived down, didn't know any of the lads down there and was welcomed in by them. Found a new home, was really enjoyed it, made new friends, really was met at home, you know, when I arrived. And did you did you keep that on for long after college or Yeah, I think it was about five years after college I've uh, played Sligo played rugby with Sligo. Mm. Um, went working with um, contractor in Tarman Barry. So I would have been two, three years. Yeah, I'd say I would have been three, four years with Sligo after I left college. Right. So you mentioned there then that after you graduated with your degree in civil engineering, you went working in Tarman Barry? Well, I went for three months. I couldn't find any work at all. So I was working with um, Tommy Cunningham in there and Sloan's. Enjoy that too while oh, I was did there. You, did you yeah, work yeah. in Sloan's? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah. yeah, enjoyed it. Um, and through working 
as an engineer for a summer um, in uh, Strokestown on a Rhodes job, I ended up getting uh, another appointment through the same company the year after when I had graduated. They were looking for engineers, so they asked me, they rang me up and asked me that I want, was I looking for a job? So, of course, I was looking for a job. I was wanting to get into the field, so I went for it and up to Strokestown. I was working for a couple of weeks on a road job, and then I was moved to Town and Barry where they were doing a marina project mm. there. Okay. So, so now I found that very hard in terms of traveling down still for training. You I'd know, say was, so, yeah. Like even when I was living in Boyle down to Sligo, like every, even a home game in Sligo was an away game for me. Of course, me. it was, and, you were constantly playing yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and I found it very hard to socialize afterwards because I was all of them to be at, to be home, to be up uh, for work, up for work yeah, the next morning. Yeah. So I found it very hard. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. No. It was just, and I found I was... I kind of hadn't the connection with the lads then because of that, like, you know, because of the social scene, I wasn't there for the social scene. I kind of wasn't, Yeah, I wasn't part of the Just team. Well, I wouldn't out. say I wasn't part of the team, but I, I kind of felt there was a little bit of a wedge between us. Well, I suppose the social were, scene was a 50% yeah, of the whole operation. Been, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And the relationships like they established were, were, were a lot, the bonds were stronger, mm. like I suppose, yeah. compared to mine with them. So then obviously I later on then in years heard uh, it was true Colin Byrne was telling me that who's your cousin mm-hmm. that you were doing a serious amount of cycling and um, how did you get into the cycling Joe? Because you well, got into it in a big way. I did but that's me you know you know it's a kind <laughs> of a, an obsession anything that I take up new that I, I get obsessed and then all of a sudden it's hammer and tongs. <laughs> um, I I went back playing football and I had played a bit of football with, with Boyle at the time as well when I was playing rugby during the, the off season because you want to set yourself off in the best foot, I suppose, with the next season coming. So you want to keep your fitness up. You don't want to be starting from square one. So I was out playing a bit with the under 20s and the juniors at the time. And then I also started, I met up with, with, with Clet, my partner, um, in, I think it was 2000 and 2001, I think I met her. And um, I was over and back to Leitrim as well to, with her. And I, we started building house. Okay. And um, I started getting pa- very pally through, through social scene, I suppose, and family events and events that was around Leitrim Village. I started getting fairly friendly with a lot of the, the, the lads in the GA team there. So I was asked again, would you, would you come out and do a bit of training? in the summer, you know, so I said I'd give it a go. I went out, of course, I went out with a, a different air of confidence about me at this stage, like it was, you know, I'd learned from the rugby, I'd kind of shrugged off the demons from the, the past and I was ready to confront anyone. I didn't care what anyone was going to say or what, you know, so I had a new, a, a new inner strength, I suppose. I started to enjoy it. Uh, started to develop really well and uh, at the time I was suffering a lot with injuries as well through rugby and I suppose through building building the house the persuasion of Colette that you know maybe you should give up that rugby because you're getting injured the whole time <laughs> <laughs> you're suffering the whole time and the house needs to be built aren't you as well just spend your time the pitch is only down the road couldn't you just go down there do your training play, again, play, play a bit of football get your fitness and be happy with that. So 
I did. I started playing football, started playing matches, but it was a totally different game. Like I had the, I had the energy or I had the endurance behind me from the, the rugby and the strength, but it was different movement patterns. You know, it was turning on the feet that you wouldn't normally do in, in rugby. And eventually the, the foot didn't, didn't like what I was putting it through and ended up getting a fractured metatarsal. Mm-hmm. So um, that was in a boot then for six weeks. I was out of action and couldn't play. And of course, I was devastated with this because I was really getting on. Like, you know, and I could see the development and I could see my improvement and I wanted to keep it going. So it really set me back. But I was determined to get back. I, I was determined to get back playing football again. And as soon as the boot got taken off, I was back with the physio and she was trying to do her best to try and get it, to, to try and get it back fit. And over a couple of weeks, she, w- she would say to me, she says, you know, you want to start doing, doing there now. And of course I was expecting go, go swimming because everybody seems to say swimming is the best for everything. But she said, no, go cycling. And uh, I says, all right, okay. Now, it, it just so happened I had bought a bike a couple of months before that, but I don't know, do you remember the cycle-to-work schemes that were brought out by the government? Yeah. So uh, myself and a work colleague in, in the council there in Leitrim, we decided to to avail of this and we got on bikes because we were, we started doing some designs for cyclists. So he said, we better... We, we we better cycle the same road as these cyclists as well. So we decided to get a bike. And so the bike anyways had been parked up in the garage for a couple of months at this stage. I think I went out on it two or three times and following the physio's recommendation, I said, I better get out and start doing a bit. Um, I was fine walking and I was fine, um, you know, even doing a bit of light jogging when I was playing football. But when I went out on the bike, whatever the forces were going down through the foot, like I could feel the ache and the pain and I thought I was getting on good at the, you know, the rehabilitation was coming on and uh, went back playing football. I think I went back for a junior C championship game and ended up having to come off because the pain in my foot was just unbearable. I wasn't able to run. I wasn't able to put my foot down. And uh, at that stage, I think we were out of the the junior, junior, C, junior C championship went down without me and as you said already, it was kind of fizzled out and then I I was cycling more. Then I started doing a few charity cycles and um, met up with a few of the lads that I had been playing rugby with in Carrick and Shannon. There was a charity cycle for them and uh, they, they, I was keeping up with them and they were just, I was absolutely out of me, out of me feet like when I finished and they were saying, Jesus, Joy, you're, you're you're in great shape, like you're, you're, you're pushing, you're annoyed, like the mountain bike tires that you had on. And I was keeping up with these lads. So this says, you're, you're, you're absolutely abusing yourself. Like, yeah, why don't you not get a racer? Because I thought this, I didn't pass my cheat out. Like, you know, I thought, what's, what's the difference? Like, you know, nobody's really, there's not really that much difference. In it. So, um, that led anyways to after a couple of these charity cycles and of course my tongue hanging out the whole time <laughs> trying to keep up. I says, I'm going to bite, I'm going to bite the bullet, I'm going to get one of these racers and, you know, try and make it a little bit easier for me. So I bought a racer and the first cycle that was coming up was the Tour de Brefney. It was ran by Leitrim Cycling Club and a few of us at work, we decided to go and do it. We we decided to do the 100k course. 
60 wasn't enough for us. We decided to go the whole hog. And what was what was the most oh, I think it was probably about 45, 50k. So decided to go for the 60k. It was up, up Glen Gavlin climb. It was, you know, you're talking, it was two, three k of a, of, of a climb. And we said, sure, we'll go and, we'll go and do it. And it was grand for the first two hours, three hours. But I remember coming back, whatever way the wind had hit me then. And I ha- I, we had lost the group. We were kind of, we were in dribs and drabs at that stage. We were kind of ones and twos. And I remember coming by Drum Kiernan and there was a food stop. And I remember looking at it and I had a few, uh, they had water there as well to fill your bottles. And I remember coming to a stop to fill my bottle. And geez, I was feeling a bit, feeling a bit dizzy, queasy, like, you know, a bit. Could feel the energy. I could feel the legs like were the energy levels were gone, and so I pressed on a little bit, anyways, and went down and was heading for Drumshambo. And I hit, I hit. I don't know. Do you know the the bridge across the Shannon there, Drumshambo, outside of um, it's called Mahana, and there's a cross. There's a turn for Leitrim Village, but the 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 road went on, or the the route went on into Drumshambo to make up the hundred k. It went into Drumshambo and it went back out the Drumshambo to Leitrim Village Road and I was going in that road I thought Jesus I'm going to cut this short now I says I'm not able to I won't be able to cut the whole way of course ignorance I suppose took over and I kept going but I went down as far as the, the it was it was started and finished at the Leitrim Gales football pitch down from us just down from the house so I went down anyway and I was hardly able to get off the bike oh it was I went, I was bonk. <laughs> but <laughs> I was, I was what I didn't really realize at the time I had, a, I had a bonk. Yes. Yeah. So refueled and what food they had there and filled up and went up and sat down and Colette and her sister was there in the sunroom waiting for me to come in and sat down and I could barely move. Yeah. <laughs> I could barely move. Cause I mean, going from your longest cycle, probably 40, 50k to do a hundred, that's, monumental. Before. It's a massive jump. It and is. even anyone now, now that I have my experience of racing and I'd, they, you know, somebody was asking me advice about a cycle and they'd say they're going to do, you know, they're used to doing 60k. 60k is about two and a half hours, maybe three hours um, for an average enough cyclist. Then to decide, well, maybe I might do the 100. That's a big difference. And we'll go through it in a while of why that difference is, but Back to when I finished the cycle, I took out my out of my back pocket. I had a phone with me and I had an app on it, and it was recording how how accurate it was. Now I don't know it. It, it would be just going on your weight and your uh, the length of time you're out on the cycle, and the speed you were doing. It came up on it that I had burned four thousand calories, four over four thousand calories. Now this was coming from a fella that had a lot of difficulties over the years trying to shed a lot of weight and you know I didn't really know what I was at and I thought Jesus there's something here now 4,000 calories like you know what you'd have to do to try and burn that running so I says I'm going to get into this now so there was a fella in the village as well that was he had he was cycling about a year before I was and he was in the club so it was a case if they were asking me to get involved and then he was decided he was going racing. So I said, sure, I'll go racing as well. So, of course, it was now this was my new obsession. 
the compulsion kicks in. The compulsion kicks in. But I can't just go in racing. Like, I need to know the everything about it. Right. So you That's just, started doing, reading I, books? And, I started reading books and how I was going to plan to get where I needed to be. Um, I just don't go in half arsed into things. But it's a good thing as well, I think. I, uh, a lot of people be, are like that. It can be... Can be it has its downfalls. As of course, well, of course, yeah. Um, and I've found that in the past. You know, people have said to me, "How you know? I'd love to be. I'd love to have your willpower. I'd love to have your obsession. I'd love to be able to, you know, just go in and even when I was in the gym, people used to say to me, "I'd love to be able to just go in and do your, you know, your workout and get out. Or you're here, you know, whatever. You're dedicated to it, but." The cycling in particular, or even the last couple of years, that obsession, the downside of it is that, you know, I'm either 100% or I'm 0%. Right. That's the thing. It's, people can float by and they can just do a bit and be happy to do, to deal, to, to do a bit. But I wasn't happy with that. I was either all in. Or it was as well yeah. do nothing. So well, that's then just that's your personality. Yeah. That's you know, and that's why I was saying a lot of people are like that. They can't if they're especially when they're into something and they're passionate about it, they want to learn as much as they can about that and try and do their best at that. So, you know, that's just personality types. And had you any crashes on the bike? Multiple crashes. All right. So the structure of uh racing in in, in Ireland, or it's run by Cycling Ireland is you start off at your novice level. So novice is A4. That's where the majority of the crashes happen. Because you have every <laughs> everyone joining, everyone thinking they're strong, everyone that has ever got a clap on the back and says, Jez, you're a great man. Like, you know, you should try racing. They're the fellas that are in A4. And maybe A3. So A4, A3, plenty of crashes. Um, some true, probably my own fault, you know, in terms of, uh, tiredness setting in, fatigue setting in, not paying, paying attention. You know, like you're racing in a group or a bunch of 50, 60 riders, you're wheel to wheel. The wheel, you know, in a good, in a, in a, in a good race, you're talking back wheel, front wheel, you're talking about an inch between both. You know, that's the, the, the distance that you're purely to try and preserve energy mainly. Mm-hmm to try and hide from the wind, try and be as efficient as you can. That's the nature of the sport. And did you, you said as well, you mentioned to me in the past that you raced in the Ross. Ross, is it? The Ross. What is that? Like? And the Ross, well, it was called, when I did it, it was called Ross Talton. It was numerous different names before that. It was incarnations. It was on post, on post Ross. I recall, I think it was in 1984 on post Ross went through Boyle. Okay. Um, in latter years, then, 2018 was my the year I did it, and that was the last year uh, as an international eight day race. So it was an eight day race. <clears throat> it was an eight day race. It had um, it was a it was it was a categorized race. So you got what they call UCI points for, it, and it was it pitted, I suppose, the best amateur racers against the. The amateur semi pros teams um, from Europe, from the UK. Um, it's very, there's various different categories, I suppose, of professionalism in racing. And these would have been the kind of the, 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 the division three, maybe level of professional racers 
that would have been racing against us amateur racers that would have been doing it on their own time, training on their own time, not getting paid, trying to pay our own way um, for eight days around Ireland. And what kind of mileage or kilometres every day on average was? On average, you're talking 140k maximum days, I think it was 160. And then I think the maximum day was 180. Now, you would have been, tr- you were cycling a few years at this stage. That wasn't I like- was four or five years cycling okay, at this time yeah. or, or racing at that time. Right. And so leading up to that, the Ross, what's the second? Talton? Ross Talton. Yeah, Talton. What, what kind of training were you doing per, in preparation for being able to be on the saddle for eight consecutive days? Um, I suppose there's two facets towards how taking on the, the, a race like the Ross. It's the number of years that you're racing prior to actually doing it. Because you need to be at a certain level or you have seen to, need to have attained a certain, a certain level and raced at that level for a while before taking it on. Um, the year prior to it then, uh, pre-season would have started in October. So if you think the Ross was May, the middle of May, and pre-season training started in October. It's based about, um, a lot of the training is based about peri- what they call periodization. So you, you break it into blocks, your season to blocks. You do more volume in the winter and slower paces and then getting closer to race season you go you reduce the volume but you increase the intensity okay right and nutritional side of things then for or during the race had you a plan like like you're you're plant-based now aren't you i'm plant-based now no but you weren't back then were you not when i started racing but i would have been dairy free um, couple of years prior to that, because I found I had a, an intolerance test done a couple of years when I started working with Leitrim County Council. There was a discount on testing that was provided for the by the council, and I had a test done, and it had found out that I was intolerant to dairy. So I had given dairy up a couple of years in advance. Um, I tried numerous different diets when I was racing. Um. The basis behind any nutrition, I suppose, or to try and losing weight is you need to burn more calories than you're bringing in. Then you'll lose, you'll, you'll burn, you'll lose weight or you'll burn fat. Yeah. Um, I had tried many different dietary or nutritional protocols in the four or five years that I was racing, but, um, I had found that meat in particular didn't sit well with me or it was kind of a, there was a heaviness to it. I had kind of, I'd be rare I'd eat any steak. I had given pork up as well years prior before that because I found it had given, it caused inflammation. It gave me a lot of sinus problems, headaches, um, steak, beef was very heavy. I found it very hard to digest. So I was, I was limited to about chicken and fish was really all I used to eat. And um, I was, I had started working with a coach um, because in the latter years I had had found that I was trying to cram too much into training. And that can be the downside of self-training or self-coaching that you think you haven't had, you think you're not covering enough. So you think you have to try and, like, you know, if you had eight or nine days in a week, you'd try and fit all in. But I was trying to cover too much and I ended up getting 
you know, you get fatigue, you get sick, your immune system will be under pressure the whole time. And um, I said, I, I'd, I'd allow a coach to take that out of my hands because I was, re- I was reading great stuff about coaches that you should get a coach that um, it takes the guesswork out. It kind of saves you from yourself is what they say. And I was one of those people. I was, I needed to be saved from myself because I was, <laughs> I was, I was destroying myself really. Um, so he had suggested, because um, I, I, he also was monitoring nutrition or he was giving nutritional advice. And um, I had mentioned to, to him about, um, I was finding it difficult with the beef and the chicken. Or I was, I was finding it be difficult with the beef and the, and I had stopped eating pork and I, I says I was eating more salads and uh, raw veg and all that. And he, he says, do you know, have you ever tried going plant-based? Now, I, I do. Some people say veganism. Um, I find it easier to say yeah, I'm vegan um, just purely because people associate, oh, well, you're, you, you don't eat any meat or dairy. Um, I don't kind of, I don't. Uh, I, I don't like the way that veganism kind of has a negative baggage to sure. it. It has a, a negativity um, that it carries that people think that you're hugging trees, that you're going around with braids in your hair, you're, yeah. um, you know, you're trying to... Well, a lot of people get confused with plant-based and, and, and being vegan. Vegan, as we know, is a code of ethics as opposed to being plant-based, you know, because... Uh, I'm plant-based as well, like yourself, not vegan, even though, as we said, we don't eat plants, animals, or we don't eat animal products, but we still wear leather and stuff like that. So it's a different, but I know what you're saying, and there is a negative, a very, I think, even though there's a big push now for the whole veganism, there's still a negative kind of association with the term vegan. It has, yeah. It's, it's, when you say somebody's vegan, you half expect that they're going to be trying to shove something down your throat like they're, they're going to be trying to save you from your exactly. meat-eating yeah. life. Yeah. Where, so, and it's easier, I find, that all the restaurants know what veganism is. Like, you know, if you oh, no, 100%, ask for yeah. vegan options, they'll have they'll yeah. have something available for you where plant-based, they kind of be looking at you going, Jesus, this fella going to be eating raw, raw broccoli or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. So you 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 found then that the the plant based diet worked well for you. Plant based diet worked was fantastic for me. You know, mm. I never looked. I haven't even looked back since. And that's I'm talking five years, maybe more now that I've taken on that lifestyle. I suppose going back to your question about the nutritional protocol that was needed for Ross or for any race, indeed. Um, you obviously need to get your carbohydrates in because that's where your body gets its, the majority of its fuel from. It'll get it from other other sources such as protein and fat, but the best bang for its buck is through carbohydrates. But gone is the day where we have to carb load. You know, it's it's gone away from that idea of thinking that um, you need to be eating bowls and bowls of of pasta before a race. It's just it, the body itself, it can't digest that level of carbohydrate. So it takes, you know, it, it needs a lot of blood to digest the, the carbohydrates or to break down the carbohydrate in the liver. So a lot of the carbohydrates, if you have, if you have been loading, it takes a lot of blood away from the system. So 
you used to find that you, your legs would be dead the next day if you were racing. So you, you you need you need carbohydrates, but you need light, something light. Um, so we I used to use what was what was called a, a tactical periodization or a carb cycling. So the furthest day away from the race, I'd be eating very little carbohydrates, more protein. More, some fats. I'd have enough carbohydrates to sustain me, sustain the body. Like your body needs a certain level of level of carbohydrates to sustain for living. Like even to keep the brain active. Closer to the race, then I'd start up on the carbohydrates. So it was like a a periodization or a pyramid pyramid model. Um, the the day before, then I'd have obviously I'd have I'd have more carbohydrates than I'd normally have. But it would be easily digestible carbohydrates. Like it wouldn't be the pasta. It may, it may be basmati rice, mm. something light, something easy to digest. The yeah. next day then start normal day, porridge in the morning. You know, that's the the the, the cyclist diet, porridge in the morning the ra- of the race. The old banana stuck in there. The banana, a bit of yogurt, some nuts as well. You, like even for the process itself to, to happen, carbohydrates to be broken down, like you need protein, and you need fats for the body to to actually go through that process. So yeah. you need to be touching all. Yeah. So normal enough, early light breakfast, topping up with a few carbohydrates during the day, some banana, um, an hour, maybe an hour and a half before a race. Now, a lot of people have this perception that you have a banana during the race. At a hard, a hard race, that banana needs to be digested, you know, I used to, to anyone that's looking for guidance now from me, I'd always say an hour and a half before, because used to say, I, I, through, through reading, through, through research on my own, on my own, um, experience or my own, um, knowledge build, building path, I discovered that they, they say that, you know, you need an hour and a half from when the banana hits your lips to when the banana is actually in your muscles ready to go. So, yeah, it's it's all about timing as well. Yeah, water then in particular is is very important. Water yeah. and electrolytes because your body needs electrolytes as well to to for that process to yeah to break down the the carbohydrates. And one one thing as well as you probably have gotten as well since you're on a plant based diet is this notion of or people assume. But where do you get your protein from? Which is a you know kind of a it's understandable if you think meat has the only protein or people have this assumption that meat is the only way to get protein but it's actually not but uh you've probably come across that a few times in your when you explain i have in the in a couple of years that yeah when i was when i was cycling and racing i suppose not so much in the last while now i haven't uh people haven't been asking me um i suppose probably because i'm still standing here it's it's obviously obvious that i'm getting it from someplace I, uh, when I was racing, obviously you're going through an awful lot of, of, um, com- uh, components, you know, you're going through the various macronutrients, you're going through your pro- proteins, your carbohydrates. So it's something that I used to have to keep on top of. It was something that I'd have to get various different amino, like the proteins are broken down into amino acids. Um, there are certain legumes, certain nuts, certain, even, like vegetables themselves, certain vegetables, everything has a certain percentage of protein in it. Sure. Uh, oats, you know, they have a percentage of protein, yogurt, various soya products. 
I try and get a mixture because one, say, a legume wouldn't be able to provide all the amino acids, amino acids that your body needs. So I try and get a range of of proteins from different sources. Now you didn't have to get it all in one um, meal, you know. No, yeah, because the 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 system has a way of restore or to to store reserve of that protein or amino acid. So it's just a case of topping it up um, every time. So yeah, I used to try and get a range of protein in. But I'm getting, I seem to be getting enough protein in now. I haven't been failing the last while. It's it's been weight I've been putting on. So I don't know. So yeah, so fast forward and then to, or that was the same year, but in 2018 then a big event Occurred, an unwelcome event. An unwelcome. Event. So tell us, tell us about it. Two thousand eighteen, after probably the best achievement of my life, you know, one of the main goals. Well, it was never, it wasn't a goal until later on in life, I suppose. That um, uh, finished the Ross, felt great. Took a week off. I think I took took two weeks off, started getting back into it again, started doing a bit of training, was relishing the amount of training gain, I suppose, you get from a race like that. Once you get, should I say, you're prescribed a dose or, or a, um, an ailment such as the Ross, like it is an impact on the system and the immune system has to deal, deal with it. So there is an impact there on the body how it deals with it, it has to grow back stronger. So I was relishing this opportunity of how fit I was going to get. You know, the, when once the fatigue went, I was going to be flying it. I was going to be, I had the goal of the nationals coming up in June. And um, I went back, I was back out on the bike. I was dealing with a, a, a calf injury at the time that I brought with me through the Ross. And um, I had a cycle with a mate of mine on the Sunday. And... Then on the Sunday afternoon, I decided I'd go for a walk with the dog and just for recovery, you know, just to do something different than cycling, because I'd like to break it up every now and again, just to do, rather than being in that one plane of motion the whole time, do something different. So I brought the dog and I brought the young one for a walk. And little did I know that the the dog himself, he must have picked up a little passenger. And at the time, I had a, a van that I was using for racing and there was three seats in the front and I the young one was on the passenger seat and the dog was in the middle. I don't know what you'd call it. It was like, we were like, probably like the hillbillies. But uh, I didn't realise that the dog must have picked up a tick. And not until the next day that I found um, a tick on the, just underneath my wrist or underneath the watch on my wrist. At the time, I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was like a pimple that had, bled and it was a scab so I went to try and take it off and then I just thought it was I, I realised it was a, a small little tick and I said Geez, I better pull that off and I thought he was just after he was trying to bite or, so I just pulled him off with, with the tweezers and I didn't didn't realise he was embedded and he broke and I tried to try my best to get it suck it out or to get it pulled out and there was a little small little black, black rem, remnant in there and so I kind of passed it off. I kind of says, ah, it'll be all right. I'll keep an eye on that. And I was racing and training at the time and um, as well. And I suppose the impact of the body was the immune system was still low from the Ross. And 
I my energy levels started to go downhill and my interest started waning in in the cycling. And at the time as well, we went out for, I had a, we had a holiday boot in Spain. So I went out and I had the bike, I had the bike brought out with me as well. And I had planned for two weeks of training, training plan and in, in preparation for the Ross or, or getting back to um, the nationals. And um, things just went downhill rapidly. Um, the interest, the, I had an emptiness inside me. I just, I had no interest. I recall sitting at the edge of the pool and the young one was looking for me to go in playing with her in the pool and I just was staring into the pool and a few times I, I recall, you know, thinking, if I, what have happened now if I just went went in here head head over heels and didn't bother swimming? Like, you know, it's... If that affected yeah, you that yeah, much? Okay. Yeah. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I, the energy levels, and I still hadn't put it back. I, ha- I still hadn't associated with the tick and I came back from Spain and the Nationals had, had been on. I was in touch with the, the coach that I was working with. And he says, maybe you should just give it another couple of weeks break and just forget about the Nationals. And the Nationals was down in Sligo at the time. So I went down there and um, I was watching that and I was met up with a few of the lads and the interest just wasn't there. And I said, I, just, I better find, I better do something about this. And of course, me being plant-based and vegan, whatever you want to. Yeah associated with people always say, oh, how is your vitamin B12 levels or how is your iron levels? Um, so I, I kind of started to believe that myself, that maybe it is, maybe I'm fatigued, maybe my immune system is low and I need to, I'm overtrained, I need to go and I need to get a test done. So I organised for a, for a um, blood counts to be done with the, the doctor here in Boyle. So that was the week after the Nationals was on the Sunday and I think it was the 26th of June the Nationals were on the Sligo and the week after that I went down and went in went over to Boyle got the bloods done and full blood count and the doctor was saying yeah we'll test you for iron for B12 and numerous different markers and I never associated with with the tick until uh, we were just there talking and he was asked telling me I think you're you're just overtrained. He says, you're fatigued. You just need a break. And I said to him, oh, by the way, I says, um, I got bit with a tick. Could it be Lyme? And he said, um, I, uh, probably, probably not. He says, I think you're, you're still, you're doing a lot of training. You're fatigued, he says, and you're, you've overcome the Ross. He says, I, sure, we'll test for you anyways and we'll see. So took the test for the, the Lyme and um, went about my business and went back to work and still in the same state I was, uh, cloudiness in my head, foggy, brain fog. And two weeks later, got a phone call, missed call from the doctor. And I knew, I seen the number, I knew what the number was, but I had a funny feeling of what the, what the answer was going to be. And of course the doctor says, yeah, you're, you have to test him positive for Lyme disease. Were you abroad? Were you, were you anywhere that was dear? Were you over in America? No. I says every answer I had was no, 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 no. So he organised for me to come in, have an appointment. I went in and got prescription for doxycycline, the, the, the drug to give you or the antibiotics, antibiotics to give you to treat it. And um, went about, went home, taken two or three weeks of antibiotics and there was no improvement. There was got worse 
so I was on to doctor again and he said, I'll increase your dosage or I'll, I'll give you an additional amount of, pre- or an additional prescription. So I was six weeks on doxycycline, I think, and there was still no improvement. It was just going downhill rapidly. Interest was gone completely for cycling and, um, everything was, I had no interest in doing anything, just more or less reclusive in the house, no energy, depressed, and had gone from the peak of a cliff, uh, the best condition of my life, you know, finished the, probably the best race or the the best achievement I've ever done anyways, and then all straight away off a cliff mm. into the sea and getting battered up against the rocks, you could say. Yeah. So... How long then, Joe, were you in that kind of be- in between feeling like that and then getting to some form of, well, I'm now on the way up again? What was the kind of transition in between those two periods? So the doctor in Boyle here, he he had no real experience. I suppose you couldn't expect him. He wasn't he, he wasn't versed in, in Lyme disease. So he recommended that I'd, I, that I'd go for towards or go for an appointment with a, an ID doctor in uh, Dublin, the matter. So went to him, was put on a cocktail of different antibiotics, vitamins, minerals, to try and build the immune system back up. When I was on antibiotics every day, I was also tra- taking prebiotics to try and undo the damage that the probe or the antibiotics was doing to the to to the stomach. Like the the day revolved around timings of taking tablets and you know taking various different nutritional products. Like the expense of it was really starting to feel, you know, it was having its toll on me. In all, to when I started feeling positive was, I suppose, six months on antibiotics. Before you kind of came around. Six months on antibiotics. Well, it wasn't that I came around because of the antibiotics. I was recommended to, no, I had true research, as as I said already, you know, everything that I ever did was I'd discover something, I'd become obsessed with it, I'd have to find out more about it and I'd read and I'd read and I'd look, I'd research and I got in touch with, I got in touch with a group um, called TikTok Ireland and there was a couple of representatives or group members were also in Sligo. So I'd heard, started hearing good things about bike magnetics and so eventually I said, you know, I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll make an appointment for myself and I'll see, you know, it can't do any harm. And so it can only make, be a benefit. So I got an appointment with a lady up in Rossnaula to do a biomagnetics um, session and uh, went up. It was the cold, it was a cold evening in November. I remember waiting in Rossnaula, the side of the beach, or she had a, she had a, a, a venue up there. And uh, went in and it was more, it was kind of like a therapy session, really. You know, she was listening. She she knew, she knew my symptoms. She knew the case. She had had experiences herself. And um, we did the biomagnetics and I felt great. I've, well, I felt, I felt somewhat better than I was, I should say. I shouldn't say I said, felt great. Was that, um, you felt better on the way out than you were on the way in? I felt better on the way out mm. than I ever, I had 
in the couple of weeks or a couple of months prior to that. I would say, even looking back on it now, I would say it kind of gave me a positivity, a positivity maybe that the body needed to start healing itself. You know, I could, some people could argue that it was all the antibiotics, but I think it, I think I needed that positivity to allow my body to start healing. Like a charge positivity. Yes, kind of, yes to, yeah. to allow the, maybe to maybe even to allow the antibiotics to start working. Maybe my system was resisting it. But from that day, and I, I had subsequent appointments with her after that. And every appointment I had, I felt so much better. And every appointment I went to the Matter Hospital to meet the consultant and he did blood tests like they have various blood markers that they can test to see how your immune system is working. Um, he 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 recognised an improvement, and the I I still didn't say anything about about the biomagnetics to him until the last session when he said to me, he says, uh, I, "I think we can start taking you off the antibiotics. I'd like to like to try it, try you without them, and see how you're getting on with just the the herbal remedies, the LDN." the vitamins, the minerals, the various different other uh, minerals he was giving me. And I said to him, I says, oh, I've been also going to the biomagnetic, biomagnetic therapy. And he says, uh, he says, I don't know about it myself, he says, uh, but he says, um, whatever, whatever you feel works, he says. And I have heard people say that they've got great things from it. And I've got great, great reports for it line I have recommended numerous people to go to her since that but um, I always kind of chalk it down to that was the time when the body started to heal yeah you know it started to fight mm. I think it 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 just give it the immune system that little edge yeah to kickstart it to again. start taking control mm. of, of the Lyme yeah like even even to this day and I've tried to do a bit of research on it in terms of Lime and in the system, like, do you ever get rid of it, or do you do you still have it in the system? I think uh, I think you do. I think it's a case that your immune system gets to a certain level that it's able to control it. Um, but I'd uh, I'd be kind of wary of immune system taking a knock again that it allowed to get a foothold. Probably, if if your immune system became weak weakened somewhat Joe that it mightn't allow it that it might resurface or allow the Lyme because as far as I know it's it, it's not a curable disease if you like yeah, yeah. A, a, at the moment but it's also a very rare disease because I was reading up in 2019 there was only 1000 reported cases or confirmed cases yeah. of Lyme in Ireland yeah. which is you know, you don't associate Lyme disease in Ireland. Well, I, I didn't anyway. It was always something you were told you get that abroad. Mm. So um, And everybody associated with, yeah. you know, have you been travelling to America? That's of the course. first question yeah. you'd ask is, have you been in America? I have I know through, through my association with um, TikTok Ireland and various different groups, um, I know of people that have contracted Lyme in the 70s in Ireland. So... I know there's confirmed cases there, reportable cases there, but ones like me that they were lucky enough to get mm. a positive test. The The protocol in Ireland for testing for Lyme is, yeah, you can get tested if you think you get bit. Uh, if you go to a Lyme literate doctor, they'll, they'll test you. 
a lot of people associate only or they'll only recommend testing if you can see the the rash. You know, we're all here of this bullseye rash or what they call I think it's erythra erythra migraines is the name of the rash that it develops. But I didn't develop a rash. Um and subsequent to me getting it then and my research, there's only something like thirty five percent of people that contracted develop a rash. And if you go to a Lyme litter doctor and they provide or the the recommend that you get tested, it's the whole testing protocol that probably you know it's not the the first test that you get tested with is called the ELISA. It's an enzyme test or it's an en- it's a test that it it tries to locate an antibody that your body is producing to to combat the Lyme and if your antibody isn't, or if your immune system isn't producing that antibody, the test won't pick it up. There's the second port call is what's called the Western blot. It's more sensitive to to the Lyme. It tests a different enzyme or a different part or protein of the of the antibody. That's more sensitive, but it takes two weeks to do. And it's commonly, I think it's normally at the time it was sent to the UK. It, it, you know, whether it's a more expensive test or not, but. There's a window there that you can fall between that you won't get a positive test, which is unfortunate. So you have a number of patients or people that might have contracted Lyme disease from a tick that have been told they're not positive. Right. But they're not producing antibody. They're not producing the antibody. And I was lucky enough at the time when I was racing that I knew I was so in tune. My my system, everything was monitored, heart rate monitored. Uh, power. I knew I wasn't producing the same amount of power. I knew there was something wrong with my lungs. I knew how how I knew what my lung capacity was like. I knew there was something wrong. But a lot of people may not associate it with anything that's wrong because you, the first thing you feel is you feel like you have a cold or a flu. It goes away for a while. You start getting the aches and pains and joints that you didn't. You only you know you can't associate it with anything. Um. You get start getting spasms, muscle spasms, um, brain fog. You know, there's a numerous different. It, it what do you what they usually call it is the great pretender. Like it's it's it replicates other illnesses that people can't associate with Lyme. And if you get your, you know, your negative test and you're not going on to Western Blot, which is the next port of call for for testing in Ireland and the UK, you know, you're kind of well, the the test is telling you you're negative, so you're you're off, you're fine. You're, mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just in your head, and even people t- telling you it's just in your head is enough. After a while, after enough times, you hear you, you, you start to say, maybe it is just in my head. Do you know, maybe that ache in my knee is just kind of something Phant- that I'm phantom I'm, pain. Phantom pain, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's the spasms in the bed and. You know, trying to get asleep and your skin crawling. And I remember when I, my worst, uh, my worst um, symptoms, I suppose, I had a, it felt like it was going down, running down the nervous system through my spine. You know, it was, it was like it was attacking my spinal cord. I could feel a pain in the neck. I never felt that kind of cramps, spasms in, in the, the throat, down through the rib cage, down through the spine before. Waking up in the middle of the night, all of a sudden with two leg, two your two legs cramping, not training at the time either, so I couldn't associate it with any 
you know, training fatigue. So, do you know, it's... Mm. And so how are you then today as of now? What, have you any symptoms? Have you any kind of associated pain or anything from that? Um, not that I can, asso- no pains as such. Now, I, I have to keep an eye on myself that I can't, I don't get fatigued or get overworked, overstressed. I, fi- I find stress in particular kind of takes its toll on the system. Training, I have an awful habit, as I said before, like it going in 100%, go back doing, doing, go to the gym, go cycling, do a bit of running. Then all of a sudden, I'm a couple of days on the trot. Mm. I'm doing too much. So I kind of, I would, if I was to describe what I'm at like now, I'm uh, three weeks feeling good, one week where I feel crap. You know, it's kind of where I have to, but I have to take that. I know, I I know now I have, once it comes, I just have to write it out, you know, you know, rest, take the rest that the body requires. And you know that you're going to have a couple of days, you know, back back at it again in a couple of days. You feel down in the dumps, like you feel a bit depressed, but... Is it par for the course, I suppose, considering you have limes? That's just yeah, probably one of yeah. the things you have to learn to live with. Yeah. But, so, the co- the compulsion comes back in now in a different uh, avenue, in the form of uh, photography, which is a shared interest we yeah, both have. Yeah, shared interest. And, um, that's how we, we th- kind of that's got how we kinda, in, yeah, in touch, ex- back in touch with each other. Exactly. Yeah. I saw you were posting on Instagram a couple of photos and I was like going, I was away travelling at the time and I says, Let's meet up now with Joe. And yeah, uh, yeah. so we went out a few times. And so how did, how did you get involved in photography? Cause it's only a recent thing. is a couple of years, maybe. Uh, it's a recent thing where my obsession has taken over. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I bought a computer, I bought a camera years back. I think we were, it was when myself and Clash started going on holidays first. And, you know, you go through this wanting to document the holidays, you want to try document family events, various weddings, things like that. And um, I bought a mediocre um, software to to process the photos and I was getting over. I didn't know what I was doing. Photographs weren't coming out the way I wanted it. So the photo camera was left into the corner of the cupboard, never to be seen again. But dr- then drones, I suppose, started hitting the market. And started giving me a bit of intrigue, like, you know, and of course, Instagram, of course, as well. And looking at the Irish countryside and how great it looks through the eyes of a drone. And of course, I was back cycling as well. And through my cycles, like cycling is great because you're up, you're up about a foot, two foot higher than somebody in a car, you know, and you're cycling along the roads and those roads I'd be going along with a car and you wouldn't see much other than the, t- the hedges like you know and then there was other places I was going by in the bike and there was you know it just was houses old houses uh, old cottages and hidden in fields and there was old cars old Morris miners and stuff like that hidden under hedges that I could see with the bike on the bike and I thought then it started getting you know giving me a bit of enthusiasm or I'd see a forest or I'd see a hill or a valley and I'd be thinking, Jesus, I'd love to have, see what's over that valley now or I'd love to see what's in the top of that hill. So of course I was talking to Clayton. I was, I suppose I was dropping hints maybe, you could say, that um, I'd love, I'd love a drone. I'd love to see what, what it's like up there. So of course, 2020, the 
the unspoken one arrived. Yes. And uh, <laughs> um, I had a birthday coming up, so Clet had arranged to uh, get me a drone for my birthday. So I thought this was great and I was going to give uh, have get great action out of it. And so set off out in the car and I was up Schlieven Aaron in Leitrim and I was looking here, there and everywhere with the drone. And it, it, I uh, actually, I said that at the time I was going to, um, I was going to put a bit of effort into it this time. Like, you know, I wasn't going to mess around like I was the last time. I was going to learn a bit. I was going to start doing editing, get a good ed- editing package. And I suppose you can't look much further than Adobe Photoshop and Lightroom. And I says I was going to invest in that as well. And I was going to learn this and I was going to make sure. But the the camera or the drone itself, it led on to the, back to the DSLR. So I was looking through the cupboards for that to see, could I get it charged up and see does it still work? Because I found the, the drone imagery in particular, it was a, it was very one dimensional. It was, particularly up around Leitrim there in Schlieven Aaron, uh, it was, there was an awful lot of forestry. And I was getting fed up with looking at the same trees, the same colours, the same textures. So I started getting back into the the DS, DS, DLSR. So started to learn about that. Started to learn about the, the I can't think of the name of it now, the triangle of... Oh, exposure. The, the exposure the triangle, exposure yeah. Triangle, yeah. And... Um, came across some online courses. Of course, got obsessed for with leather that, with them. for leather, <laughs> watching every video that was. And of course, when you were nearly finished one, there was another video. <laughs> so became steadily obsessed with that. And then, of course, it's a case of uh, the lens now isn't, isn't <laughs> great on this. And the megapixels aren't great on the, on the camera. So I decided to buy a, a better camera. And bought a few lenses, still learning, learning the way. And I just, I was interested in the learning as well. And how, even when I, when I always look back, when I started Photoshop first, geez, when I started Photoshop first, there was, I could not, like, I was looking at videos and I did not know what I was looking at. It was, there was so much in it and it was so hard to figure out what I wanted to do. And then it was so hard to figure out what icons did what. But I persisted and I started to, you know, eventually I started to learn. I started to remember this keyboard shortcuts. I remembered what was the certain icons meant. And I started getting more into composure of what compositions was, you know, look good. And um, from there, I got better, you know. And yeah. It's an ongoing and loved process, it. yeah. Loved it. And what would be your favourite genre of photography? Well, I would have said landscape, you know, and but then I was always the big vistas and I kind of got bored with that as well. And then I started using the telescopic lens to try and home in on more, you know, more of a, a smaller feature in the landscape. But that a certain thing that, you know, using the compression of the lens as well that mm. people wouldn't associate with 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 the same picture, they might might see what the eye sees, but they don't associate the compression of the of the lens. Um, but my genre, I would say, I don't have well a landscape. Yeah, Majority it, yeah. of it is landscape, but I suppose you 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 yourself have put me wise to um, street photography with the and the finding. I give you I give you that recommendation for yeah, the documentary yeah. Finding Vivian Meyer, which is 
fantastic. unbelievable yeah, documentary. Yeah. But um, yeah, street photography. Street photography, yeah. fine art. I'm kind of into that now as well. Various genres, yeah. like, it's, it's, which it's, maybe can be my, can be my downfall too, that, you know, you associate certain photographers with certain niches, styles. Yeah, yeah, they do. And they, they can do. develop that style where yeah. I'm kind of, bit of this, bit of that, bit of the other. Yeah. I suppose there's nothing wrong with that either. I'll no, eventually abs- find my niche. That absolutely. Well, I mean, I go down. I've been doing it since 2007. And yeah, I would say documentary slash street photography with a bit of street portraits is in there. Mm. But I still like landscape. One thing I really haven't done is wildlife. But, you know, that's something, again, I don't like the pigeonhole either at this stage because I don't need to. If you're interested in doing wildlife today, landscape tomorrow, Portraits the next yeah. year. That's the way it should yeah. be. Yeah, wildlife is a is a different. It is. It's a lot of waiting around and yeah, in a hide and yeah. camouflage suit on you. And I'd love to try macro something. Macro would be good. I'd love yeah. to try. Opens macro. up a new world. Oh, yeah. right under your nose, like yeah. really. Yeah, I'd love to try that. I haven't tried it, but it's on the list. Mm. Um, now, Clet has a lot of flowers around the house, mm. and every August, July to August, I do go around doing a small bit of. I haven't got a macro lens now, but I'll try and do a small bit to try and, I suppose, highlight the beauty of these flowers and try and get in and the intricacies of them. And yeah. of course, then you have the bees and the, there's lovely lavenders out in the back of our out in the back of our yard, and there's it's, it's full of bumblebees. Like and yeah, yeah, trying to get them in all their glory. So, what does the future hold for Joe going forward? Any goals, ambitions? What? How would you like the well, like with cycling, photography, you know the different elements? Uh, get back into cycling a bit more. Mm. You know, I'm not I'm not doing enough of it now these days. Um, I have a lot on with football and coaching kids uh, in Leitrim Gales. Back coaching a bit of football. I'm I'm back five years now at this stage, and trying to get back into a bit more cycling. I'd love to just. Balance everything. Mm. Um, I found like cycling, it gave me a lifestyle that I never had before. You know, it made me confident. It made me more positive about, uh, positive about my own body image. Like as, as, as I said, more confident, there would have been things before cycling that I would never have done. Do you yeah. know? Even say, for instance, you asking me to come over and do this podcast, like yeah. years ago, I wouldn't have done anything like that. But the positivity, the confidence that cycling give me, that how I take on going forward. And, you know, I want to try new things. Mm -hmm. I want to understand different views, different opinions. Like that's the one thing I suppose, the one positive I take out of the line is that now I, I'm more tolerant of people, I find. I'm more open to opinion and I'll also try and educate myself more. Yeah, which is important because, you know, you can, I think people that aren't open to different opinions, maybe like you probably said, you might have been, you know, you can, you can be closed off to a lot of stuff. Whereas yeah. if you can, you don't always have to agree with them because mm-hmm. that's, that's the way it should be. You shouldn't agree with everything. So it's nice to be able to form your own opinions. And as you've obviously done in all your different endeavors, you've done the research, you've gone hell for leather, as we said, yeah. and you know, and that's, that's your personality. So, you know, it's all about adapting and you seem to have done that. So it's um, it's great to me, you know, to to have come through uh, an awful time like that with, 
with Lyme to kind of be in the down on the dumps over everything and to come back and then to you know find a new passion with the photography but also you want to rekindle that the bike again and one thing that I did want to mention, and I will put this in the post that goes along with this uh, episode, is you wrote a very powerful Facebook post that uh, in, in 2018, in September uh, of that year, talking about how you lost your best friend. Mm, and mm. that was an analogy for your bike. My bike, yeah. So, and I will put that in because it's a great post and it actually yeah. got picked up by a paper, didn't it? <clears throat> yeah, it, it was recommend or... Um I met her, I met through, through the Lyme groups again, I met with a lady down and she, and she actually recommended me to go doing the biomagnetics in, in Donegal too, um, Fiona Quilter. She, um, so pushed me, give me a push to, to submit the piece to Sligo Champion for the notes. I, I believe it was the notes, but they took it on. I think she had connections in there and, um, in Sligo Champion because they had done a number of pieces or a number of adverts for Lyme awareness for Fiona her Fiona as well. And I just didn't think of anything of it. I assumed it was going to be edited within to an inch of its life and I was okay with that. You know, I said to her, you know, you can edit it as best you see. So she came back to me, she says, Joe, I don't need to do any editing on this. I'm happy to go with how it is. So... Yeah, it went into the the paper to try and make to 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 bring awareness, I suppose, mm-hmm. to because there are a number of people in Sligo as well that have suffered with Lyme Lyme in the past too. Um, to bring, to, bring I suppose, to you to use me as a kind of a, a not I wouldn't say poster boy as such, but a person of my kind of sporting background background yeah, that yeah. it can happen to, to anybody like yeah. you know it doesn't have to be your hiker or your farmer or or you know somebody yeah. out fishing or you know just it can anyone. happen to anyone yeah yeah anyone and before we wrap it up joe is there anything you'd like to touch on that we already haven't there's numerous things carol i think <laughs> 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 how long have we got <laughs> Fire no, nothing in particular. Yeah. Um, uh, I, we didn't touch on my new love, my new obsession, <laughs> which is which is the mythology. Oh, the mythology! Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Talk about that, though, yeah, because that does tie in as well with it. Does it I t- ties the, in with my photography? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was looking for a line or an angle to go on, and um, I, I suppose I'll I'll say I'll tell you how I got into mythology in the first yeah. place. I think I was driving to work one day, and I was. Uh, listening to Dave Fanning and I don't normally listen to Dave Fanning on 2FM but he was interviewing um, Mankan Mangan who um, who was just bringing out his new book 32 Words for a Field and uh, he was telling the story about the various different and I couldn't believe this there was 32 different na- words in Irish in Old Irish for to describe a field various different fields you know the stony field the rocky field whatever other type of field is. But um, he had a way about him and he was, the passion he had for Irish was fantastic. And I'd always kind of feel a bit sorry that myself that I didn't pay enough heed to Irish in the past when I was in school. And um, I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this book, read up on it and uh, 
see what it has. And maybe it might educate me a bit more, you know, as well and try and kickstart a bit of an, an interest in the Irish language. So I was reading it anyways, and I came across a piece on it about the Twit of the Danon. And um, now I'd heard of the Twit of the Danon a few times before, wouldn't have associated with much. But the story he had was that the Twit of the Danon landed on the Iron Mountain or Schlievenir in Leitrim um, when they were invading Ireland thousands of years, thousands of years ago. And they burned their, they, they arrived in a cloud of smoke and flames and lightning and landed on the island or landed on the mountain and departed and burnt their boats so they couldn't return home or return where they came. And I was intrigued with this. I don't, it, I didn't know that Schlievenirn was associated with this old Irish Celtic mythology. So that led me on to listening to his podcasts. From that then, of course, I started to get a bit obsessed and I said, I better start finding out more. Is there more uh, mythology associated with Ireland? Or w- w- with with Leitrim, with Sligo, with Boyle, with Roscommon? And of course, we all know about Nocnery and Queen Maeve and all that. So I started to delve a little bit deeper and I started to find out it does an awful lot, sorry, associated with um, Connacht in particular and um, started to read and get to to listen to more podcasts. Got hooked on um, a podcast called Candlelit Tales, binged numerous hundreds of podcasts because I had only found them late in life. And they, they had two or three years ahead of me. So I spent a couple of months binging them. Of course, that led on to something else and something else. And um, yeah, I developed an interest in mythology. And it also gave me a line for my photography because it's it was a story I could establish with a location. the landscape, the yeah. location, the various different. Yeah. And it was all achievable. It was it was in the locality. You know, it was something that I could travel short distances to. Yeah. I could go down to Nocnaray, I could go to Karakil, up to Kruakonai in Ratcrohan, um, Schlievenirn, discovering, you know, uh, and through my work as well at Leitrim County Council, I would have worked with a lot of old, old maps, old OSI maps, and I could see on them that there was old houses, old cottages that were long since forgotten disappeared in the middle of forestry, in the middle, mm-hmm. under hedges. And I set about trying to discover these. And the drone came in handy as well when I, when I could. And I was always looking for this, you know, hidden gem, something that nobody knew was there and try and bring the story across to people that people would look at it and say, my God, I didn't know that was there. Well, that's that's true because I think there's there's definitely a little angle there because like yourself, I love trying to incorporate a story with a photo because I think it just makes it more dynamic and interesting. We all love stories, mm. but I haven't seen the that angle done much. So, mm. you know, that and you have the obvious interest in the mythology of the local area. So you could definitely combine your your mythology knowledge and interest and research capabilities and try and get a photo of a certain area or landscape that has meaning, trying and, to you know, and I know you're doing that in a couple of your last posts as well yeah, on Instagram. Yeah, and I think to. it's a very, again, I love a kind of an educational side to photography as well. If you can learn something about mm. a photo, whether it's a story, a background or something. So it's definitely good. Yeah, like not everybody is into reading or researching. You know, people, 
they may say sit across from me and they might listen in a pub to now I don't drink anymore but I do I do socialize they might listen to me tell a story about the tweet at the Denon or Queen Maeve or something like that but they won't they'll only listen for so long but if you can emulate that or you can exemplify that in a photograph and have a little story with it exactly you know it as they say a picture paints a thousand words people are going to be interested in it because everybody's attracted I suppose to, to Instagram nowadays and the colours yeah. and the, so if you can get something a landscape uh, a battle site you know a megalithic tomb something like that with a, a, a sunset or yeah. a, a glorious looking sky above it and have some sort of a story with it you know it gives some sort of meaning or it gives a bit of depth to it yeah, that exactly. people can associate with and I'm, you'd be surprised the amount of people that know very little about the mythology of Ireland, oh, even I the stories it. around around the locality the here. Locality, Boyle, yeah. I'd Riscana. say it's very high. I, I definitely, yeah, yeah. I, I myself don't know much at all about that. Again, it's something that I think we should know more of and it's probably because it's not pushed in our face. It's not pushed in our face. And even when you look back to how are we taught even in mine, your time now, I think Irish has changed since mine and your time. What's the first thing you do when you go into first year in, in Irish class? Grammar. Mm. Like, who's going to associate with a language with grammar first? You need to be, you need to live it. You need to be immersed in it in some way. Why not at that time? We should have been told the stories. We should have been told the stories of the town Bokuna. We should have been told the story of the even the Cotmoitira, you know, only down the road in High Wood, um, the Battle, Battle of Moitira, you know, the stories of Cúchulam, the the Red Branch, the um, Nafinia, you know, like a story to highlight Irish. Like me and you, we would have been interested in, you know, you know, as I mentioned before, the Gladiators, yeah. uh, MacGyver, you know, if we had a story to go with, we would have been caught. Course, you know, we, yeah. we would have been, we would have bought into it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we're not, we weren't, we had no real incentive at a young age. There was nothing to hook us. No hook, no yeah. hook, yeah, yeah. But, um, but it's changing. I, I know, I see that changing and I even, I see the way mythology has, it's become more mainstream. Definitely there's more people um, interested in it. Even you have to, if even you look at the, the fire festival, the Baltina fire fire festival in Ishnak every year it's getting bigger and bigger. Like this year I think there there was ten thousand at it uh in May. The year before I think it was probably eight, nine thousand. Like it's 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 getting more known. It's getting big bigger. I think the one thing I would say about the one thing that came out of the pandemic, I hate saying it, the the name itself, but was that people kind of had a reset and you see more people are out in the wilds they're out hiking they're out walking they're getting back to nature they're, they want to get back to a sense of belonging they need something because it was taken away from them for yes. a couple of years that's right they need something but they need something to associate with mm. they need something to identify and our identity is our Gaelic heritage so that's why I find people are getting back into the mythology yeah and as as said it, that freedom and that they were they weren't able to during them couple of years to do any of that within a certain radius, obviously. But as you said, now they're getting back, and it's good to see. 
it's yeah. good to see people yeah. trying to get a connection back yeah. to their to their roots. But um, well, I think I think that about covers okay. um, what we wanted to cover, Joe. Um, thank you very much for coming on. No I appreciate all, taking Carol, the time. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me again. Not a problem. And uh, that was fascinating stuff. Thank you. I'd just like to say what you're doing here is fantastic as well. Giving a voice to people in Boyle. Uh, I know I'm gone out of Boyle a couple of years, but I still like to say I'm. F- anyone ever asks oh, me, boiled, well, yeah, yeah. even gone, I'm gone 18, 19 years or whatever, I'll always say I'm from Boyle originally. Yes, yeah, and, absolutely. And even I find my association with Leitrim now with Sligo. I, I have great affinity with Sligo and Roscommon. I'm always, I'm truly a Roscommon man. Oh yeah, Boyle um, through and through. But like even the, the podcasts you've had up to date have been fantastic. Like there's been some great great talks like yeah. I'd, I'd hope that I have come across and that I can also add to that oh absolutely and that's again the core kind of principle of doing this as we've said is you know to to document people's stories lines. and as you said everybody has a story everyone has a story it doesn't matter how small not everyone has lines not everyone has you know <laughs> not everybody has an interest in mythology oh that was more around a- absolutely uh, but I think you know it's it's important because 10, 15 years down the line, it's always good to have these stories documented. And yeah, uh, yeah. I just wish we started doing them sooner. But as the Chinese proverb used to say, isn't it? The best year, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Second best time is now. Exactly. So, I've heard that before too. Yeah. Very so, good. Thank we, you. No problem. Thanks very much, Joe. Thank you, Carla. Thank you.